Welcome to a very special episode of Death by Video. Uh, we've gone to the cinema yet again to see the new film from Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Death by Cinema, when we do this. you got to get it straight. Okay, Death by Cinema. <laughs> so. I'm Phil. I'm Kit. And I'm still Graham. So, guys, we just got out of the theater. We saw a beautiful 70-millimeter print at the Varsity Theater here in Toronto. I actually would put it right up there with one of his best films. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I think, like, yeah, there were slow moments, but also, like, I feel this is very much a hangout movie. The, the Hateful Eight, on the other hand, is a much better film and has a much better ending. Yeah, I'd probably put Hateful Eight above it, but I do, I don't know, I just, I dug this, the fact that Tarantino was essentially telling, like, a, a, it's hard to say down-to-earth story, but it's the most, like, rooted in reality up until the very end. Rooted in reality? No, I, I think this was a fable through and through. I think this was uh, like it was like watching a cartoon sometimes, which is fun. That was what made it fun. But uh, like those guys who were like analyzing it, like oh, you know, uh, DiCaprio's character, you know, the Sharon Tate gang. That's exactly what he was trying to become. Like, don't overanalyze this movie. There's not much to it. It's mostly surface, but it's fun. I would, I would agree. Yeah. So, so Phil, you missed it when we were walking out. A lot of people were trying to deeply psychoanalyze the characters, and I'm like, no, no, no. These are Tarantino characters. Like they are, they are surface and they are text. But uh, I, I just, I just loved how Tarantino built this world. And like you could tell that he knew, like all the characters' backstories of what they did before they wound up to that point. Who is uh, playing Polanski in this? I don't know. Some guy. It was some Polish guy who. Looked exactly like Polanski. Did and I also didn't know Polanski used to dress up like Austin Powers. That's a fact. That's well, that's that's the thing. Like I remember when Austin Powers came out in the late '90s, Siskel and Ebert said like younger viewers might think it's ridiculous, but people actually dress this way. Uh, off the top of your heads, what did you guys think? Go, Phil. I hate to be a buzzkill, but I was disappointed by it. Ooh, really? Throwing shade? Okay. Why? You know what? I think Tarantino. He was. He just seemed really checked out here. Uh, really? Yeah, like like the writing just seemed kind of lackluster, and like most of the supporting cast, it seems like they're just dressed up for like a 1969 theme party. And uh, wow, that's throwing some harsh shade from Philip Ryder. Great moments for sure. I like the Forrest Gump esque uh, special effects of uh, inserting. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and various and yeah and yeah like I almost never like Leo and I liked him in this and Brad Pitt this is a notably terrific Brad Pitt performance so I'll give the movie that like there are points to it but then there's just the rest of the movie which is wow 
not just not good. Sorry. Ah, uh, I think you mean to say you just didn't like it. Saying something is not good—that's that's pretty harsh. <laughs> yes, I I mean it's I should phrase that subjectively. Mm-hmm. This is of course my subjective opinion. Exactly. We don't. We're not one of those like oh it sucked podcasts. Exactly. Yep. Kit, what are your uh, first off the top of your head opinions on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Well, as I was uh, telling you as we were walking out of the theater, I liked the first half a lot better than the second half. Um, the first half was just kind of fun. I feel like that's when Tarantino was having his most fun, when you're just telling the story of uh, DiCaprio's character uh, and um, Brad Pitt's character. I think his name was Cliff Booth. I can't remember the name of DiCaprio. That is correct. Yeah, no uh, DiCaprio's character was Rick uh, Clanton. Cl- Rick Dalton, man. Dalton. Yes, Dalton. Thank you. I mean, they say it a bunch of times. I'm just a bit of a scatterbrain. Even in the last scene, he introduces himself and says, Hi, I'm Rick Dalton. I know. I think he said it too much. Uh, and Cliff Booth is just a more memorable name. Uh, as, uh, uh, what's his face? Um, as Dur- uh, Dern, Harold Dern? No, Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern. <laughs> Sorry. As Bruce Dern said, like, John Wilkes Booth? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a really good cameo, the Bruce Dern cameo as George Spahn. There were a few good ta- uh, cameos. I liked even Timothy Oliphant as the um, as the cowboy in the um, what what what's the show they're making? Lancer is the name of the show. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and Luke Perry was also in that scene as well. Luke Perry actually. Yeah. And a special cameo by Luke Perry, the late Luke Perry's son, professional wrestler Jungle Boy. Uh, he was uh, in the background of that scene as well. Oh, cool! I didn't know that. That's a neat bit of trivia. Um, so, okay, so top of my head, liked, liked the first half, liked the indulgence of it, just liked the total, you know, the, um, the insert cuts, uh, all the inserts that they were using to kind of, um, tell the story of, uh, his career, uh, that kind of stuff, um, that neat little scene when, uh, Brad Pitt's on the rooftop and he's remembering why, um, why that one guy doesn't like him and he can't work with him and he remembers it, and that takes, like, 20, 20 minutes, I think, to tell that story. It was a great story featuring Bruce Lee. Yeah, um, and um, Kirk, uh, Kurt Russell as the uh, the guy Kurt that doesn't Russell. Kirk <laughs> and Zoe Bell, um, all the regulars. And I, I always like that uh, when a director has uh, um, a firm kind of rogues gallery of regulars that you always see in his films. I kind of like a repertoire. That. Repertoire. There you go. Um, so that was a fun scene. And then you know at the end of it, uh, he's like, "Oh yeah, fair enough. I guess I guess he doesn't like me for a good reason." Um, but then the, the stuff with the, the Manson family I don't think was as strong, uh, apart from the Bruce Dern bit. Um, oh, the part where he's talking to that precocious girl, I hate it. I hate really? it. Really? I, I hated that as well. I wow, you, got, you guys it. just have no joy left in no, you. No, no, no. Um, it just it wasn't interesting. I felt like, um, I don't know, uh, Tarantino was trying to kind of say something ham-fistedly about um, just woke uh, people or actresses or something like that. I don't know. He's getting something off his chest with that. It seemed like he was dunking on method acting, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, a little bit. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's fair. But the, I don't know, the precocious kids like that where they're given dialogue that is clearly way over their heads. Uh, it never appeals to me. I never think that that's a cute trick. Wow, you guys are just hating on this movie. I thought that was really funny. And also, it's, it's a precocious little girl. Wow. Yeah, no, cut it out. Uh, shave some time off that film. It's not necessary. does not add anything. Uh, I think it uh, slowed the movie down unnecessarily. Uh, that's my take on that. And uh, the ending is is a bit messed. I was about to swear, and I stopped myself. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about it. 
Uh, it goes for the same ultraviolence and glee that uh, Inglorious Bastards did, in, which is maybe a lazy way to do things, maybe a lazy way to end your stories. Uh, also, he just started relying, uh, to Phil's point about being a little checked out, story. I think he had so much fun in the first half of the movie, and then he's like, all right, I gotta end this. Uh, we'll just have Kurt Russell narrate everything so I don't have to explain or kind of show anything because I need to get the show on the road. That's what I love that. I love that montage in Italy. That, that was fine, but I think the narration was, um, I, I have to tell the rest of this story and I'm too lazy to write anything better. Not wow. It was bad, but it could be better. Some serious shade from uh, Kit and Phil. It's not his best film. It's still fun. I don't know, guys. I, I have to disagree with both of you strongly. I really dug this movie. I thought that I really liked Brad Pitt's character arc. I mean, sure, he might have killed his wife. It's it's strongly suggested, but I do like the little trick he pulls where you don't actually know for sure. And you're like, yeah, he probably did, though. But maybe he didn't. <laughs> yeah, I think it's up to the audience to interpret which way they went. Phil, where did you swing with that? Possibly. He was also on acid at the end of the movie. Let's put it that way. Like, he was out of his gourd. That, that was the funnest part of the end of the movie, just him reacting to things. But then the ultraviolence kind of killed the mood for me. I'll be honest. Yeah, we're not going to get into too many spoilers, but no, some... whatever. Spoil away. No, 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 no we're not spoiling. this episode, you should have seen this movie. Sorry. <laughs> for once, I'm trying to protect spoilers. Just because some people, like, I actually... I kind of put it together in my head what was going to happen in this movie just from, like loose different reviews I kind of like put okay this thing and this thing and this thing to kind of figure it out did you guys have any idea that's how it was going to end before walking in um yes and no for the most part I kind of was under the impression that okay he's gonna okay like Leo and Brad are gonna save the day in some capacity I just didn't know it was gonna be executed quite like that oh I agree I didn't know that either yeah, I, I, I sort of figured he was gonna go for sort of an inglorious bastards type deal okay like revisionist history yeah yeah clearly you know like Manson family is not going to uh, spoiler yeah you, you can say it they're not going to kill Sharon Tate and company mm -hmm. kid did you know going in they're not gonna send another wave of hippies to, to finish yeah. the job um, no, I had no idea. I uh, really didn't know too much about it. I've been kind of uh, avoiding reviews and stuff. Um, but I kind of guessed halfway, sort of halfway through, you kind of get a feeling, oh, he's going to do an Inglorious Bastards thing. He's going to do the revisionist history, because why else um, have Brad Pitt meet these hippies in the first place? Why have any of these things set up? So, um... Well, it should be pointed out in the book Easy Riders Raging Bulls, the Manson family were known in Los Angeles. Like they were, they were commonly like seen around people, and like I think Manson, Manson like hung out with uh, Dennis Wilson and uh, someone else from the Beach Boys, and like he was introduced around. I think he even went to the Playboy Mansion at one point. Like there were known quantities in Los Angeles in 1969, which Boomer revisionist history, like oh the peace, love, and whatever. No, no, no. Most hippies were more like Manson than they were like. <laughs> More like, uh, I don't know, the movie Woodstock would lead you to believe. I most hippies were more like Manson? I don't know if that's true. Maybe it is. I have no idea. It was more cultish, for sure. Like, the Children of God cult like came out of hippieism, the communes and whatnot. Um, what I was going to say is, uh, what did we all think of the, well, the casting in the film? I thought that the casting in this film was probably Tarantino's best throughout just because there are so many interesting actors in so many different parts. I mean, some of it was weird casting, like uh, Harley Quinn Smith, Kevin Smith's daughter was in it. She didn't have any lines, or they cut her lines out, I'm not entirely sure. 
the the one person I think who benefited from this casting was Lena Dunham because like as soon as she showed up, I was kind of like, oh no. I yeah, I I thought I was like, is that? Oh, that was Lena Dunham. That's I said aloud at the end of the film. Yeah, I saw her in the cast like before I'd seen the movie, so I knew she was in it, but I completely forgot it. And even when she was on screen, I like she just disappeared into her character. Sort of, yeah. It's almost like Tarantino is a masterful director. Yeah, um, I also there so many blanket or, or you'll miss it cameos as well. Yeah, it was great to see uh, uh, Kansas Bowling, who I met a few weeks ago, in it, uh, and her sister Parker Love Bowling. There was also Dakota Fanning was in it as well. Yeah, I like Dakota Fanning. Uh, that, as far as like the non-veteran actors, yeah, uh, Dakota Fanning I probably like the best as like the Manson girls and that bit part. And, yeah, I also thought that like she kind of you remember in True Romance, uh, Michael Rappaport's character of Floyd. Yeah. Or sorry, is it? My, yeah, it's Michael Rappaport's no, Brad, Brad Pitt's right. Brad Pitt's Michael character of Floyd. Michael. I kind of. Who freeloads off of Michael Rappaport? I kind of feel that like she was kind of like the Floyd of this movie, where like she's only in it for like one scene, but it's quite good. Yeah, yeah, she was she was good in the scene. Uh, it's a nice, it's a neat little piece too, and that's where we meet Bruce Dern's character. Uh, that was a cool little scene too. Yeah, I can't be sure. I didn't I didn't see it, but I did notice. Uh, I think it was Ethan Hawke's daughter. Uh, anyone with Thurman's daughter? I can't remember her name. She was in season three of Strange season three of Stranger oh, Things. Uh, Maya Hawke. Yeah, I think Maya Hawke was the Manson girl that ran away before the attempted massacre. Yeah, she had a familiar look to her, so that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I just finished watching Stranger Things Season 3, so I think that's where it came from. She was really good in that as well, and I thought she was the, the Manson family, like, the uh, before they, uh, they met Cliff Booth, were uh, kind of hilarious in their little debate about, like, oh my god, that was Rick Dalton, and now we gotta go kill the pigs. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely sort of like a movie throwback, you know, kind of like how in the old movies, like, Nazis are played off as bumbling idiots, and, like, the Manson family are basically bumbling idiots in this. And it's just, like, played up for comedy value. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Screw them. Yeah, well, it, it's also very Tarantino-esque, you know. You're reminded of the uh, the dialogue between the two hitmen in Pulp Fiction beforehand. Not as bumbling, but just kind of just weird comical... Uh, that is an interesting callback, though, to Pulp Fiction, like with uh, Jules and Vincent discussing like fast food overseas, and here it's the Manson family about discussing like TV shows. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, and having fun with it, and then getting all like, oh, let's get into character. Um, is is that a? Uh, how much of this movie? Uh, not much is factual, but um, did like one of the hippies drive away? Is that a is that a thing that happened? Or you know what? I, I don't know enough about the case. I don't know enough about it, but uh, I do know that Tarantino he was going to write a book about the Sharon Tate murders a couple like ten years ago. So he actually did like a ton of research on it, which is why I think I think that's how he put it into like all the like he definitely knew each member of the Manson family and had like a direct analog to them. Um, I even think when Charles Manson appears in this himself, played by the guy from Justified, I can't remember his name. I remember he played like Dickie Bennett or something in Justified. I was like, oh, it's that guy. I love that guy. Oh, no, he's Charles Manson. Um, Barely in the film. Barely. Which I think was good because otherwise that would, th this whole film would be... It's hard to because to me the film isn't really about Charles Manson and the Manson family. It's just that's what was going on in 1969 in Hollywood. I also really liked how the film showed the transition in Hollywood from like classical traditional Hollywood to the new Hollywood of the 1970s. Um, I think, was this the year that The Graduate came out or was that 68? That was 68, The Graduate. Right, so this was the year The Graduate... Um, what film won Best Picture? Was it... Um, I think it was... So Midnight Cowboy was 69. Oh, it was In the Heat of the Night, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was either 67 or 68 when he, in the Heat of the Night won. Yeah, I think, so yeah, so like this summer you've got Easy Rider. There's even like a reference to it when Leonardo DiCaprio calls one of the Manson family a, uh, what does he call him, like uh, Dennis Hopper. But there was a, yeah, so there's like a definite upheaval going on in Hollywood, which Rick Dalton, a classical movie star. There's also a visual detail because you see in the background like, oh, uh, it's, like, it's like Funny Lady or... Funny Girl. Funny Girl, sorry, Funny Lady the sequel. Yeah, Funny Girl, it's like, oh, eighth smash month, and that's well, part of the old Hollywood. Yeah, definitely. The interesting thing as well is that Quentin Tarantino's actual movie theater, the New Beverly in Los Angeles, they played films that, like this whole month leading up to this, they play, were playing the films that are like referenced or the posters are up there. So they played The Wrecking Crew, the film that Sharon Tate was in. They played, I think they played Funny Girl. They played like... Um, I don't know if they played that, but maybe. I know that kind of like caught my eye because like in our last, um, uh, po- the last podcast I edited, The Beyond, like you referenced Romeo and Juliet, the movie. Well, also he had just been talking, we'd just been talking about all these Italian directors and that was that part of the film where he just, he worked with this guy and this guy and this super Italian sounding guy. And then that was Franco Zeffirelli, another Italian working director who did uh, Romeo and Juliet. It's also interesting because um, I think they used actual scenes from in uh, the Operacion Dynamite, uh, I think those are actually scenes from a Sergio Corbucci film uh, from '69, which I can't rec- I can't recall the name of. I know it's on uh, the entire film is on YouTube. I think that's the only way to watch it. There's also a trailer for CC and Company, aka the um, the Nam Angels, um, which was a uh, a movie from 1969, which had Hell's Angels going over to Vietnam to win the war. <laughs> Another with Joe Namath. <laughs> with Joe Namath, yeah, and Anne Margaret. Um, okay, so yeah, Oliver won Best Picture in 1968, 1969, Midnight Cowboy won. So mm-hmm. that's quite a, uh, quite a quite a drastic shift. Um, yeah, there was also Samantha Robinson from The Love Witch. It was great to see her in something because she is such a great actress and she doesn't get enough love, in my opinion. Uh, we already talked about the Bowling Sisters being featured. Uh, Harley Quinn Smith, Lena Dunham. Lena, again, Lena Dunham, like, I was kind of surprised because I actually thought her, as soon as I... I think the worst thing that has happened to her was her own show, Girls, because everyone associates that character with her. Yeah, that that doesn't help. Um, the film also, of course, features Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, which I think she gave a really good performance. I really enjoyed her as Sharon Tate. I mean, it's hard to say that because of what happened to Sharon Tate, but I think she was... She came across really well, and she just sort of seemed to, like, exude uh, joy and positivity in the role. It took about 25 minutes before we saw Margot Robbie's feet. And they were filthy. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of uh, filthy feet makeup. It wasn't, well, that, the filthy feet was gratuitous. But then, even before then, when she wakes up in bed, you get a nice longing look, kind of. I do appreciate the fact that all the feet in this movie were dirty, as they would be walking yeah. around. Yeah. Uh, another thing I appreciate. I once wore sandals. Yeah, your feet are not, uh, they don't look good. But uh, another thing I liked about this movie was uh, the soundtrack. It's 1969, but we're not hearing, like, the zombies and uh, CCR. Uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. But mostly Paul Revere and the Raiders, who weren't, you know, they had a song or two. Uh, you, you do get Mrs. Robinson, but then that's about it. It's, like, a bunch of, like, cool Joe Cocker covers, um, some Neil Diamond stuff. It's, it's uh, uh, sounds like a good soundtrack. I want to check it out. There's a version of California Dream that I kind of liked on the yeah. soundtrack. Yeah, I wasn't sure, but it was it's great because, like, I feel that with our, you know, quote-unquote classic rock stations and whatnot like everything kind of gets whittled down and whittled down and you kind of lose just the breath of music that was around at the time and i think that's what tarantino is good for is that he digs deep to find those tracks like i even looked at a a listing of the soundtrack 
they're like, oh, I wonder what movies he pulled soundtracks from. And he didn't really dive as much into other movie soundtracks for this one. It was a lot of period piece music. A lot of people listening to music on their radios. Um, there was some sweet headphones that Leonardo DiCaprio was wearing towards the end. Um, we lost those in the pool. Yeah. Yeah, sadly, before well, there's he... There's some good use of diegetic radio chatter in the movie. Like the, uh, they also... Uh, there's also some like Batman and Robin uh, chatter during the rolling, the end credits. I like the Batman and Robin stuff. But what was that uh, bit on the radio where the guy was like, uh, "So there's going to be zero smog today." Oh wait, sorry, a lot of smog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was Los Angeles in '69. It wasn't still the period like at, in Los Angeles in '79 when it was really bad, but it was still quite bad for smog. One thing I noticed: no shots of the Hollywood sign in this film. No, uh, I, that's. I'm impressed. Yeah, that's. I did. You're. I'm just realizing this now as you're bringing it up. But that's some restraint. Way to go, Q. I did also recognize um, the western set that Rick Dalton shoots the series with with Timothy Oliphant. Uh, that's actually the street that's also used for Mexico in Arrested Development. Huh. I felt that the Spawn Ranch was wonderfully dilapidated, as it would have been in like the late '60s after TV had like kind of like. Demol- like uh, just wiped out all the um, feature film production that was going on there at the time. Um, who else can we talk about? I mean, Nicholas Hammond is in this movie somewhere. I think he might have been the TV director. So Nicholas Hammond, he is the um, he's the nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. yeah, he's the nineteen seventy nine TV Spider Man that was on NBC at the time. Um, who else? That can uh, we- disappointed. There's uh, not as much Pacino as I was hoping for. We're kind of uh, left a little short on the Al Pacino. I was kind of expecting it to be a cameo part, though. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I also thought Mike Moe as Bruce Lee was fantastic. Yeah, I liked <laughs> uh, That was funny, yeah. It was a good scene with him and Brad Pitt. Yeah. See, I have a feeling... Zoe Bell is basically as herself. Yeah, she was great. Uh, Kurt Russell is really good, too. Um, I have a feeling that this is the kind of movie that the more we talk about it, the more you guys will be like, you know what, I like this movie. I... Here, my starting position is that I enjoyed this movie. Kind of didn't like the ending so much. I don't think I'm going to come around on that. It's just, uh, it's such a contrast. The violence just seems so unnecessary at that point. You could kill the hippies without well, you all, that you amount all, of violence. But you also <laughs> notice that like the positive things we're talking about are from the first half of the movie as well. That's true. And the second, this what we say second half is more like second quarter because it's like or like sorry four, fourth quarter no second quarter because it's like it's a very it's a there's a quick jump ahead six months and then there we learn what Rick's been doing in Italy with Cliff and then they come back and I can't remember but I think that um, what you call it the Italian wife of Rick Dalton in the end of the movie is actually played by the lead actress from The Green Inferno. Um, who I just I can't I can't tell off the top of my head and because we're recording this on my phone I can't look it up. Um, uh, that sounds. I'm sure you're right. Okay. Given the Tarantino Roth connection, and <laughs> which is which has steadily declined in the last ten years. Sure. The last time they collaborated was ten years ago, um, and I, it's interesting because I think of Inglorious Bastards as like the turning point in Tarantino's career where he where he decided like, okay I got to make films that come in under budget and on time, and. Um, I have to like let go of the shackles of like the first ten years of the uh, of the two thousands where he was making Kill Bill and uh, Death Proof, and kind of like do stuff that like he's like okay this stuff has to stand, has to stand the test of time which I feel that Inglorious Bastards does Django Unchained does Hateful Eight does and this will 
eventually, hopefully, stand the test of time. The one thing I wanted to talk about, and I'm, I'm not a nostalgic person for this time period because I wasn't born, <laughs> but I was really sad that, like, oh, like, that's gone and it's never coming back, that era where everything is so movie-heavy and, like, every theater is playing a different movie, and you can go and enjoy stuff. Um, so with that being said, let's wrap this up. Um, guys, any final, final thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Phil? Uh, not particularly. I think I said what I basically what I wanted to say. I think also another observation to go back to your point about how you you don't see the Hollywood sign. I'm also kind of su- I was also kind of surprised it would be a more I was expecting it to be a more Los Angeles movie with regards to there being more exterior scenes like that in the one movie. street basically. Yeah, yeah, you see some neon signs. You see a bunch of marquees. Mm-hmm. You see some old movie posters. Well, I think that just comes some diegetic ads, but at but most of it is just indoors and uh well i think that the reason that is is it just comes down to budget and also the fact that most of what existed in hollywood in 1969 is long gone sadly sure yeah but it's still well recreated what they did recreate yeah man i just want to go back and watch all those movies um kit what are your final thoughts on once upon a time in hollywood uh yeah i'd say go see it if you like tarantino you'll probably like this one too um I don't know if the... What do you guys think of the audience that we saw it with? They were a bit strange, no? They were like... It was a weird one, yeah. Like a bunch of college boys, basically, is what it sounded like. Yeah, very brilliant. <laughs> well, it's it's one of those things where I kind of feel that, like, his audience gets, you know, not necessarily guys like us, where we're... I want to say we're art house and grindhouse film lovers combined, which I think Tarantino is. Um, not to compare us to Tarantino, but I feel that, like... Uh, Tarantino's output of like Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, Pulp Fiction, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, not so much The Hateful Eight because a lot of people didn't like it, but I have a feeling that like it draws a, because I mean I had a Reservoir Dogs poster in my room in university and I know that they sold a, a, a poop load of, uh, of Pulp Fiction posters and Kill Bill posters in university as well to people that didn't really get the movies. Yeah, that's true. And we always forget about Jackie Brown, because Jackie Brown's a good movie. Mm-hmm. The bros di- didn't, though. Well, no, the bros have totally forgotten about Jackie Brown. Um, so, yeah, so that's uh, my final thoughts on Once Upon a Time. Just, uh, also, the, the set decoration is lovingly done, and um, a lot of that stuff is done with care. And that, that shows, so that's nice. Yeah, this was definitely a labor of love for Tarantino to recreate that time period. And I think it's also sad, because it's like the last of these kinds of movies where they can do big streets where they just redress the entire street to look like 1969. Like, if you've been watching The Deuce on the behind the scenes, they talk about how, like, they basically have, like, a couple storefronts that they can use, and then they have to, like, figure out how to reuse it or how to, like, with the uh, the mar- theater marquees of, of uh, 42nd Street, they basically have one marquee, and then they have to dig- digitally recreate it all the way down. And in this film, Tarantino is notorious for not liking to use digital effects. So he... Um, he basically just dressed the street, and I think this was one of his more expensive films. I think it was around ninety-five million, which yeah, is yeah. I heard something like that. It's like close to the hundred million. And I think it's doing well financially. Uh, opening weekend, I don't think. It's like what did like what around forty mil? Something like forty, forty-five. Um, hopefully, it it does well and continues to be successful because we only have one Tarantino film left. Oh, he's he's quitting, the is Star he? Trek the Star movie. Trek movie. I don't think that'll happen. I think I think that's like I think that's also the way of his like what was it, his his African American Inglorious Bastards that he was gonna make or his um, there's also Kill Bill Volume Three. Also, did did he say he's only doing one more movie? 
Yeah. For years he's been saying, oh, it's like 10 and done. Yeah, that's nonsense. He'll continue making movies as long as he likes to. I don't think so. I think he's married now. He's, you know, he's getting up there. He's 55, I believe, and he's... So he'll take, like, five years off or so. He'll, he'll do that. But then he'll be like, I, I got an idea. I've been writing this. And people will be clamoring for another movie, and he'll do it. Apparently he said he wants to write theater. So I'd be, you know, I think that could happen. He also, you know, he, he, he's won. He owns his own movie theater and programs it every month. It's true enough. So that being said, signing off from the Tim Hortons at Bay & Young. I've been Phil. I've been Kit. I've been Graham. Please go see this film in theaters on film. We saw it on beautiful 70mm projection at the Varsity Cinema. Assuming you can. Assuming you can. I know it's not. It's it's hard to do in most places on this planet. But uh, go see it if you can. And uh, keep watching awesome movies. Good night. You can't change that